Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us? I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners and others, whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. Today, I'm really delighted to introduce you to Rachel Sayet. She's a member of the Mohegan tribe from Uncasville, Connecticut. Uh, Rachel has been working for the Mohegan Cultural Department since 2013. Since then, she's been researching Native American foods. She has presented her work throughout the country at conferences and classrooms and has begun food sovereignty initiatives at the Mohegan Tribe, partnering with the Health Department on gardening events, cooking and storytelling workshops for the Mohegan youth and a native cooking show. Her most recent project is the Native Food Discussion Group created in order to share knowledge about seasonal eating, harvesting, growing, and fishing practices. Rachel, I'm delighted to have you. Welcome. So, Butney, thank you, Judith. So, let's talk about your experiences. You've got quite a bit here about food initiatives and gardening events, cooking and storytelling that all relates, um, makes a connection between your tribe uh, within the tribe, but also for the for the outside world too, to understand the rich cultural heritage that you that you have to offer that also supports the holistic nature of us. Sounds good. Thank you. So I have always been interested in food my whole life and always been cooking. I grew up cooking. My family sat down for family dinners growing up and things like that. My mom had a vegetable garden. So I've always been around, you know, healthy, wholesome meals for the most part, and just always had a passion for food. My parents also, they took me out to eat when I was a child at gourmet restaurants when I was about two years old. Most kids didn't get that experience. They took me to Scotland to a restaurant where children weren't even allowed in, and after I went to the restaurant, they started allowing children because I ordered off the adult menu. Uh So (laughs) I've had a long history of eating well, and and I, I really enjoy food. It's definitely one of my passions. So I did my undergraduate in restaurant management, worked in kitchens for a while, and later I studied anthropology and learned how to, you know, talk about food more in a cultural context. Mm-hmm. And upon graduation, I started working for the tribe, and someone actually asked me to be on a panel about Native American foods for a conference, and I hadn't written anything about it. I'd just been interested in it. I'd never really done much work with it but I had grown up eating seasonal Native American foods. So for instance, during the summer, we have the succotash season, when those red kidney beans are ready towards the end of the summer, the same thing with the corn being ready. We have the green corn Thanksgiving, uh, the green corn festival, which is our modern day powwow, which uh, is this year is going to be August 18th and 19th. And so that powwow is based on our traditional green corn festival, the harvest of the green corn. Mm-hmm. 
So we had those kind of things growing up, but it wasn't all the time. It was just, you know, for the festivals and different things. And so when my friend asked me to be on this panel, I thought about it and I said, hmm, you know, I don't know that much about all the different foods, but I've always wanted to learn. And I had a mentor at the time, and I still I still speak with her quite often. Her name is Dale Carson. She's from the Abenaki tribe, mm-hmm. and she lives in Madison, Connecticut. Um, she has been doing work with Native American foods, herbs, reenactments, things like that her whole life. She's an elder now. And just an amazing woman. She's published multiple cookbooks. One of them is called New Native American Cooking, Another is Native New England cooking, mm-hmm. and, and basically she had kind of introduced me to the subject and shown me some things that she was cooking at home, her her garden, some traditional pots and things like that. And so when I was approached to do this panel, I went over her house, interviewed her, got in more depth about the subject, and she really helped to spearhead this project in that she also connected me with other chefs in the area, people she knew, you know, folks who were known for their clam cakes, people who were known for their Johnny cakes, mm. uh, Johnny cakes being, you know, a traditional food of New England that are cornmeal and basically cornmeal and water. Nowadays, people make them with milk and butter and things like that, a modern, kind of a modern Native American cuisine. And non-natives make them too, right? They're pretty popular New England kind of food. Mm-hmm. So she introduced me to these different people who made all these different things. And what I did was I took it upon myself to interview them for this paper. I went to different powwows. And for those of you who don't know what a powwow is, it's an intertribal celebration celebrating, you know, nativeness, Indianness. Multiple tribes get together and they eat and they dance. You can watch dance performances and you can buy crafts and things like that. So I went to the powwows. I went to Shinnecock powwow out in Long Island and a few other different events, small ones, university powwows, did these interviews. And I, I just learned, you know, a whole lot about the different people who are in the in the field of Native American cooking, you know, whether it be someone at a powwow, whether it be a home cook, all different people. And kind of what went into it, what, you know, some folks, Sherry Pocknett is a very well-known Mashpee Wampanoag chef. And she and her family have been doing Native American food for generations and generations. And she does catering at powwows as well. Her, her uh, powwow vendor name is Sly Fox Den. Mm -hmm. And she's actually, we're very very lucky, those of us who live in Connecticut, because she's actually living in Ledger now. Mm -hmm. And she does catering also out of her home. So she'll actually do lunch orders. I've actually ordered lunch from her. Um, She'll deliver so you can actually order a Native American meal pretty much any day of the week now for a pretty reasonable price. So I learned a great deal from her because her family actually used to run a Native American restaurant on the Cape called The Flume. Her uncle has written a book called Cape Cod uh, Wampanoag Cooking. And so she grew up with, you know, going oystering, going hunting, uh, doing all of that, you know, knowing when the herring comes in and it's the start of the Wampanoag New Year towards the April, May time of year. That's the time where they, they really think of that as their New Year when the herring come back to the rivers. Things that, you know, we probably had at Mohegan too, but we don't necessarily talk about anymore or we didn't at that point. Mm-hmm. So meeting all these people and learning these stories was just amazing 
enriching for me to a point of something that, you know, I'd always been passionate about, but I just never really knew about my own people. Mm-hmm. And there are elders that, that they retain these stories, but it's just not always talked about mm-hmm. um, in the general, the general tribe. So all of that, you know, was kind of the start of this project. It became a paper and a conference, conference panel, and then later evolved into really wanting to do more groundwork and hands-on work with it because not only myself and my tribe, but other tribes throughout the country have joined in on this food sovereignty movement. Hmm. And food sovereignty being really, you know, being sovereign in the way that you grow your food, the Hmm. way that you plant your food, um, harvesting food, hunting, all these different things, basically being able to be self-sustainable is the concept of food sovereignty, being able to not not rely on the supermarket, Mm -hmm. things like that. And this movement is broader than Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. This movement is throughout the world. Mm -hmm. People are, you know, there's um, U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, and then there's also a Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. And they're a little bit different because the tribes are already sovereign nations. They have that government to government relationship, the tribes that are federally recognized. Mm -hmm. So they need to be sovereign on their own. So kind of feeling like it's not enough to be recognized as a sovereign nation. We also want to be recognized um, in our food. We want to be sovereign in our food as well, because we don't want to be relying on the government and on this country um, that basically, you know, took our land and all our resources for food that they've brought to this country. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, there are many, many vegetables and plants that we all eat, right, that are Native American foods, corn, tomatoes, squash, and beans being some of the primary ones, the new world foods that everyone knows. But those foods that were brought in here were very, very detrimental. The foods that were brought from colonization, such as pigs, cows, they destroyed the landscape, they tore up things, they brought in you know, different animals and pests and things that are still affecting our, our environment today. Mm-hmm. So to go back to where we were, it would be, it will be a long, long process and we may never get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to start slow with teaching people about the traditional foods, what are they? What do we have here in New England that is a traditional Native American food. Most people think of it as Yankee cuisine or Yankee food. They don't even acknowledge the Native ancestry behind the food because many people aren't taught Native American history or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I I have Native American in my ancestry, and I always think about the beautiful gifts of the corn, you know, and that's such a typical New England food, I think, of it as New England. But I know it's in other parts of the country as well. Um, but the fact that you're educating us to the ancestry about it so that it doesn't get lost. This, what I miss in my own world is the stories that go with the planting, the stories that go with the harvesting, the songs that go with the reaping. And we've lost that kind of communal connection to the land, which to me brings us back to what is holism? What is a holistic nature? What does that even mean? And I think from my own experiences and from the the contacts that I have through the podcast series, that nature wants to work with us. 
And when we give thanks and we work closely with the land, with real mindfulness and intent, nature like rewards us a hundredfold, you know? Yeah, I believe that is that is true. And the simple concepts of Native American cultures, you know, throughout the country and indigenous throughout indigenous cultures throughout the world really are caring for the earth, respecting Mother Earth. That reciprocal relationship with nature that many people have lost touch with Mm -hmm. in general. And, you know, the most common concept that people know, right, is when you hunt, you hunt a deer, you're going to leave tobacco, Mm -hmm. you know, in place of that, you know, Mm -hmm. as an offering, things Mm -hmm. like that, simple Mm -hmm. things like that. But that's really why myself, actually, I practice my native spirituality. I was raised uh, Jewish on my dad's side. And my mother is uh, a medicine woman. And I practice my native spirituality because that, to me, makes sense. Just the concepts of just respecting the earth, mm-hmm. reciprocity with animals, mm-hmm. plants, mm-hmm. rocks, everything like that. Everything working together in a cycle, a healthy cycle, a holistic mm-hmm. cycle, is really how I feel I'm meant to be part of this earth and this universe and how many people feel, and I think that's why many people are drawn to Native American culture, Native American spirituality, because it, these are basic concepts, but they are extremely important, and many people just don't think about them. I know. We have to get out of our heads with the concepts, and we have to really get into our hearts with it, because to walk our talk takes great diligent effort, and it's not an easy thing to do. It's very easy to say, I respect the earth, and I say thank you, but it's more than just that. You know, there's got to be some consistency. There's got to be some mindfulness put behind it. Well, let's get back to the food, though, um, Rachel. You have such an interesting story about all the people that you've met, the foods that you've probably tried and made yourself. What's your favorite Native American food or dish to make? Hmm, people ask me that. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard for me to pick favorite foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... I enjoy a lot of seafood in general. I cook a, a lot of seafood, you know, clams and things like that, oysters and that kind of thing. My mom does more of the soups, the stews, the succotash. Mm-hmm. And succotash, a Mohegan recipe for succotash is basically the corn, the kidney beans that I mentioned, and, you know, some water. And you boil the corn for a while. I could send a recipe. But they also add pork fat, which is a modern-day modern day being the past few hundred years we've mm-hmm. incorporated pork into a lot of our recipes mm-hmm. throughout throughout the past few hundred years just for flavoring mm-hmm. traditionally we didn't have we didn't have pigs as i mentioned mm-hmm. and we didn't have cows so we didn't and we didn't have flour or gluten and mm-hmm. those are the big things that cause health problems and we can mm-hmm. get more into that but for me um i would say the seafood is a big one i enjoy the yokeg, which is our traditional parched corn, mm. and yokeg basically is parched cornmeal. So instead of just raw cornmeal, it's a traveling food. Uh-huh. Hunters and warriors would carry it with them when they went on a long journey. They'd place it in a sack along their waist, and it was nourishing. So basically, you parch the corn once it's dried over an open flame, and we're talking flint corn, we're talking, you know, ancient varieties of corn, mm-hmm. uh, some of these corns, which I'm growing now, and, you know, non, you know, not sweet corn at all. So we're using this corn for parching and grinding. Mm-hmm. And it would fill them. It would, it would nourish them on their journey. 
And now we use this cornmeal or this parched cornmeal, go keg is the Mohegan word for it, for various things. Again, we can make it into modern recipes. So we can put it on top of ice cream as a little crunchy topping. Hmm. And we'll put it on top of cornbread, again, as a little hmm. nice you know, texture. Mm-hmm. And you can, again, you can still eat it on its own. And it's just a good snack to have. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty, it's a pretty neat food. And uh, Wampanoags and Narragansetts have their own, their own version of that as well. And traditionally, you know, when we had all these hundreds and hundreds of varieties of corn, these are things that I'm working on two initiatives with the tribe bringing back. Um, mm-hmm. We come from the Lenape, Delaware, so a little farther west tradition originally. So I have gotten some uh, sasapping corn, which is a blue corn variety uh, from my friend who, his name is Owen Taylor, and he's a seed saver. So mm-hmm. there's a large initiative in this country to save heritage seeds. And there's also actually an indigenous seed keepers network. Owen is not indigenous, but he works closely with indigenous folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, White, uh, who is Mohawk, she is the head of the indigenous seed keepers network. So these folks are really working to preserve these heritage seeds. They're doing amazing work. And I'm just learning myself about seed saving and that type of thing. But I'm excited that we have planted some of these blue sasapsing seeds at Mohegan because these seeds themselves have a unique story. Again, they're for grinding. It's a blue corn. It's not for eating off the cob. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these sto- these have an interesting story because at one point they were, you know, close to extermination. And my great aunt, Gladys Tantaquidgen, who was a medicine woman and ethnobotanist, she had, had actually passed along some of these seeds to a culinary historian in Pennsylvania, William Weiss Weaver, who I actually just met yesterday. Oh, <laughs> good for you. It's very exciting. Yes. So these seeds are now being brought back to the tribes and the seed savers call that rematriation where they, so similar to repatriation with bringing back objects and things like that to tribes, the seeds keepers are actually trying to give back certain heritage seeds, which is just an amazing, amazing project. It is because we could spend another whole podcast on what's happening to our seed populations and how contaminated they are. So all these grassroots efforts will make a difference in the long run if we keep at it. Seed saving is a, an art into itself, so it's always mm-hmm. good to pass on information for people who are seed saving. Cut, uh, my listeners can purchase them from reputable places so that they right. can keep them alive in their yard, and the more that we keep them in in our uh, our yards and that we save those seeds, they get acclimated over generations to our particular neck of the woods, and we can create strong strains that can handle some of the changes in the weather. You know, we can't predict as much today as we used to be able to. The weather is very erratic. We have very strong wind currents that come and go and leave us with rain, leave us with drought, and it puts a stress on all of us, including our plant nations. So that's that's, that's really interesting. Um, You were talking also about... uh, you work with the youth, so you tell stories with your your food making. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, sometimes I do food stories. I also do traditional stories. I, I, I run a story time uh, at the Mohegan Library every week. I share traditional stories from various tribes, mm-hmm. and some of the stories that I've done have been food stories as well. So 
we've done programs where we've made a strawberry drink, which is an Iroquois traditional drink. Right now we're in the strawberry moon Mm -hmm. and the strawberry moon, you know, is basically the month of June, although, you know, we have the 13 moon, so a little different and all sorts of different strawberry recipes. So the Mm -hmm. strawberry drink is just basically muddled strawberries that sit in the water and, and, um, and you can drink that. And there's, there's so many stories about the strawberries. There's, there's a couple cute kids stories and um, we can share that with folks, the links to those, but um, strawberry drink is just one of them. And then yesterday, actually I did this cooking demo out in Philadelphia and I made a strawberry cornbread, which is actually one of Dale Carson's recipes. Oh. So she has really unique ones. That sounds delicious. Cause it's, I find, I don't find too many recipes in terms of a cake or cookie with strawberries. Uh, it's more of the puddings exactly, and the pies, yeah. and you know? So she has one. It's interesting too. Yes, and that recipe is fun, and it's interesting too because that recipe is a modern day recipe that incorporates flour again. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what the original recipe would have been. It pro- might have been just the cornmeal, and it wouldn't have been as much leavened. Uh, I I would like to speak with her further about that. But what's funny is that in the colonial accounts, Roger Williams actually says that he tried this cornbread. And he said that the Narragansetts make a very fine strawberry bread. Mm. So he had something similar. Yeah. And he was excited about it. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I I save ch- uh, chestnuts and acorns, and I make flour out of those. And then I've also had flour out of the cattails. And that's delicious. The mm. only thing is in the cooking, from my experience, is... If it calls for a cup of flour, then you put half and half. You put half acorn to half whole wheat, hopefully organic or whole wheat. And it comes out very, very good. To do it just by itself, they don't have the gluten. So I'm I'm thinking that maybe the breads were more flat breads, that type of mm-hmm. thing. That's what I'm thinking, too. I'm thinking almost similar to the Johnny Cakes that yeah. are flatter. But mm-hmm. you're right. I didn't even think to try it with the acorn flour. That's something that that I really want to learn how to make as well as the acorn flour. And I know acorns, you know, some of them can be very tannic and traditionally we would soak them in the stream and things like that. And it kind of depends on the variety of acorn though. It does. In my experience, the, the white ones are the easiest. Um, the red ones do take a lot of soaking, but I've made, I've made flour from the red ones. And if I soak it, I think the last batch I made, I had to soak it at least 10 to 15 times to get the tannins out. But then I had a really great flour, you know, and I would put it in my pancake recipe. So I would make my pancakes totally gluten-free by using chestnut flour, acorn flour, and then I would maybe add a little bit of other, you know, organic flowers to it because I make more of a French pancake so I like the crepe kind of thing mm, sounds good yeah interesting so before we conclude um, what is your opinion as you do these travels with food in terms of our connection to the plants you know do we do you see people having a connection to plants and food in general I think that varies person to person right I think that you know, many, many, there are many people these days who are gardening, farming, and, or even just connecting to plants on a daily basis, you know, just walking, you know, in nature, and they enjoy that, and that's a huge part of their life, right, folks who just want to go and sit in the woods and relax and those Mm -hmm. types of of things, and then there's other people who, you know, just, just go to the supermarket, and, you know, as Ellen 
Moyer had said in that other podcast that, you know, that that disconnection is, is real. Many people don't even have that connection at all. Mm-hmm. But I think that in terms of, you know, ways to connect with nature, did you want me to mention the ones that I have here? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love you to share what whatever is relevant, what you feel comfortable with. Okay. So for me, I do. So I also um, am very into um, essential oils. I have my own business with that. And I, and that kind of goes with a lot of these other holistic concepts, but I'm also into astrology. And so I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, the moon cycles and that again, it can be Western, but it's also, it's also Native American, right? We had our own ways of connecting with the moon, connecting with the stars, that type of thing. We had rock structures and formations mm-hmm. that would tell us, you know, what was going on with those things and what we were supposed to be planting, all of that. You know, we were looking at the moon to know when to plant, when to fish, all of that. And so that's one of my recommendations for people is to, you know, look at the moon, look into the moon cycles, uh, whether, you know, you want to use an astrology app or the farmer's almanac or something like that. Um, all of those are great ways to kind of connect with nature and connect with, with our moons. Um, obviously, you know, we have 13 moons again, and the traditional native kind of calendar uh, would be more of a 13-moon calendar. Actually, something I'm trying to build with the Native Food Discussion Group is mm-hmm. a 13-moon food calendar. So that's a goal of ours, to kind of pick a food from each season, like the strawberry moon, uh, the green bean moon would be July, things like that, and make mm-hmm. a calendar. So that's one suggestion. Mm-hmm. And, and just, you know, noticing the fruits of the season, just noticing, you know, I think people, you know, it's hard this day and age for many people, including myself, with all the technology around us to just look up to see that there are strawberries coming up, right, that there are these plants coming up because you're just so focused on, you know, the phone or the technology, unfortunately, and people need to look up. They need to look up at the sky, at the night sky, you know, take a look at the stars, appreciate, you know, the planets and, and the moon cycles, and just look up and see, you know, what's growing. I agree. I agree. And that just takes, um, in some ways, we have to think about that more. I know as uh, an herbalist gathering from the Meadowland, if I'm too busy, the plant's gone. I've missed the opportunity to harvest that plant. I have to wait till next year. So I have to be mindful what the season is, what's going on in the yard, who's coming up next. You know, it's like who's on first, who's on second. You know, if I miss it and I'm out in the, you know, busy in the world, they're gone and I cannot get my supplies. Um, So do you have another tip for us? I, I personally, you know, part of my, you know, as I mentioned, I practice my native spirituality. So I personally, I, you know, I leave tobacco outside in nature. Uh, I do prayer, uh, you know, pray to my ancestors for guidance and things like that. Everyone has their own spirituality. So, you know, whether they want to go out in nature and do a different type of prayer or whether that's something that they're comfortable with, um, that's up to them, right? But I yes. think that that's always a good thing to do. Do something like that in nature. Um, go outside. Think about whether it's your, your, your whether it's your ancestors you want to you know pray to, or whether you just want to kind of just have a little talk with the trees, right? Right. And again, I love you bringing in the fact of giving back, giving something. It doesn't have to be elaborate. A friend of mine who did a lot of uh, practicing with with her native elder. She absolutely adored chocolate. 
And so she just felt that was a, a, an incredible food and an incredible gift to give to back to nature. doesn't matter who eats it or nibbles it. The, the fact is the action of saying thank you with something to give away. Right, exactly. And in many tribes, we do spirit plates. You know, we do them during a ceremony. We'll leave a spirit plate out for spirits to eat, and it could have a variety of foods on it, meats, berries, anything like that. And sometimes I actually do go out and leave a spirit plate as well. So similar to what you're saying, it's more something that's filled with food that you put out. I've even heard people just pouring their coffee on the ground. Mm -hmm. There's all different right. ways to do it. Again, it's the intention that comes from our heart. You know, giving thanks is simply giving thanks. And whatever we can give away uh, it with the same spirit, oh, who's going to say it's right or wrong, you know? Um, thank, well, Rachel, this has been very, very interesting. What I'd love you to uh, end with is some of your upcoming classes or your contact information. How can people get a hold of you if okay. for, for future you know, classes on your part? Sounds good. So I have a website, rachelsayit.com, and I've been posting my upcoming workshops and events, um, both um, my lectures and my essential oil workshops. Both of those get posted on the website. And... Mm -hmm. I also have a little uh, Facebook page where I post some Native American foods, and most it's mostly actually all different types of ethnic foods. It's not just Native American. It's called Uni Will Never Be Bacon, uh, <laughs> Uni as in American. And um, so you can follow me on Facebook on that page too. Oh, that's great. Well, I want to thank you again. I I hope. Everyone feels as inspired as I do by Rachel's talk and, and your enthusiasm for these foods and what you're doing for your community and how you're sharing that out in the world because it's not just for your particular tribe. You're doing things at universities and other events to get uh, our connection, to keep our connection strong with the beautiful things this earth provides. So I want to say this is Judith Dreyer. I'm the author of At the Garden's Gate, book and blog. And for more information about this podcast, go to my website, www.judithdreyer.com. You'll find the transcript as well as my class schedule and book. I like to end with a quote from Paul Hawken. He's an environmentalist and author who reminds us, sustainability Ensuring the future life on Earth is an infinite game, the endless expression on behalf of all. Bye for now and enjoy.